following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 14th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. We are, in fact, reaching the end of our time together in Esther. Are you excited about that? That's a trick question. It's a trick question. No would be great because you want to hear more. Yes is honest because you're tired of hearing about it. So it was a trick question, really. I was just setting you up for another related question. And that's simply this. I'm curious if you've given much thought um, to the things that you get excited about. And what do you get excited about? And and I don't just mean generally excited. I'll be more specific. What What kinds of things do you get so excited about that you celebrate them? that you intentionally celebrate them. You know, some families, some cultures, some groups, they, they make a big deal out of birthdays. They'll make a particularly big deal out of anniversaries. They'll make a uniquely large deal out of certain holidays. And here's the thing I'm getting at. You can get an idea of what matters most to people when you see what they celebrate. And not just what they celebrate, but what they don't celebrate. And I'll be honest, at the outset this morning, our stream of the evangelical church, that stream often known as the reformed stream of the church, we're not known for being big on celebration. We're not generally known for being excessively joyful. Ask somebody what marks our stream, they might say, the importance of the truth, which is good and yes, Identifying sin, yes, that's important. Identifying the idols of our hearts and smashing them, yes, that's great. Joy and celebration, not so much. And it's sad because all of those things, an adherence to the truth, a right understanding of our sin, an identification of the idols of our hearts and smashing them ought to lead to celebrative joy. But that's not what we're known for. And I've thought about it over the last year and a half in particular, in my own life and in the life of this church. When the time comes when either God returns or in his purposes for this church, he he doesn't see fit for us in his his things here in this city anymore. I, I don't want history to look back on this church and say they really didn't understand joy. There was no real legacy in their life of joy, in particular joy in the gospel. See, of all things, salvation is worth celebrating. And I think that's a big area of growth for us in the coming years. And believe it or not, the end of the book of Esther can help us in it. The end of the book of Esther, in particular the last half of chapter 9, It's going to give the history behind a celebration that started 2,500 years ago and still continues to this day. So if you've got your Bibles open, make make your way to Esther chapter 9, and I will remind you just in the sense of context that the book of Esther was actually written much longer after the events that it recorded happened. Most people believe that Esther was written at least a decade after the events in the story occurred. And so the writer of Esther is writing about these things after King Xerxes was killed later on in his own bed, after Esther and Mordecai had lived out their days on the earth, 
And as he's recounting this story and recounting these things, he ends this book helping to explain to God's people why they're still celebrating something and why they should keep doing it. And so if you're open to chapter 9, you might remember in verses 18 and 19 from last week, when God's people were delivered from that day on which everyone in the Persian Empire had the right by law to kill them and annihilate them and plunder them, when they were delivered from that certain death, they spontaneously began to celebrate. They had two days, the writer said, of gladness and feasting. And, and I want you to note as well, if you've been with us along the way through Esther, we've tried to make note of all the points, or at least a lot of the points of artistry in the book because it's a literary masterpiece. And you might remember that the book of Esther started, if you were with us, by two great feasts. King Xerxes held one feast for 180 days for people throughout the entire empire, and then he held a separate one for seven days just for those people who were residents of Susa. And here, at the end of the book of Esther in chapter 9, it's going to come full circle, and we're going to have two days of feasting. The first for all of God's people throughout the empire, and the second just for those who are in Susa. So the whole thing is starting to get wrapped up now. And so in chapter 9, verse 20, after God's people have enjoyed the, the rest and the celebration of their deliverance, it says that Mordecai recorded these things and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them. I love that word. We're going to talk about it later. Obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So just as God's people, as they were able by his grace to overcome those who sought to do them harm, they, they resulted in spontaneous celebration. They realized the deliverance that God had worked on their behalf and they celebrated that. Mordecai looks around and he sees that spontaneous joy and celebration in the lives of God's people and he says, this is worth remembering. This is worth celebrating. And so Mordecai decides to give this celebration an official status. He knew that it was of utmost importance for God's people to remember. He knew something that was true about his own heart, about my heart, about your heart, about the human heart in general. And that's simply this, the further you get away from those moments of joy, the further you get from that experience, the easier it is to forget it because we're forgetful, because our hearts can leak. So Mordecai said, we, we need to remember. And this practice of intentional remembering, it was already woven into the life and the culture of God's people. If you're familiar at all with the story of God's people leading up to this moment, you might remember a story in which Joshua led God's people towards the promised land and as they crossed the river Jordan, Joshua took stones from the Jordan River and began to stack them up on the other side of the river. And it seemed a curious thing to do. But the word of the Lord says this, Joshua said to the Israelites, in the future, your children are going to ask, what do these stones mean? He said, you can tell them then that this is where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the river right before your eyes 
And he kept it dry until you were all across, just as he did at the Red Sea, when he dried it up until we had all crossed over. He did this so that all the nations of the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful, and so that you might fear the Lord your God forever. Some things are so great, they're worth intentionally remembering. And what is it that Mordecai wants God's people to remember about this moment and celebrate year in and year out? Verse 22 tells us, it's the days on which they got relief from their enemies and the month that had been turned for them by God from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. Mordecai wanted to make certain that God's people did not forget the great reversal that God had worked out on their behalf. Friends, some things are of so great a value it's worth making sure you don't forget. So let me ask you this before we get any further in the story. When was the last time you gave any real consideration to the ways in which God brought salvation into your life? I mean, when was the last time you gave any consideration with, with hindsight to look back and begin to see what at the time you couldn't see, all the ways that God worked particular things out for you to be in that place, to work in your heart at that time, to open up your eyes, to see his glory in the face of his son. When was the last time you considered all the ways that God preserved you, all the things that he did, all the ways that God delivered salvation into your life? When was the last time you actually considered it? Have you written it down? Have you captured the story of the evidences of his grace in your life? Here's the thing that I've come to realize. Unless you do that, you're prone to forget. And I can promise you this much, no one is going to remember it for you. As I was reading Esther chapter 9 this week, I, I was confronted by how poor a job I have done in my own life and in my own family's life with this, in the life of the church, to be honest with you. I mean, how great would it be if there was a, a way in which you could sit down at night and open up the book of the story of the generations of God's evidence of grace throughout one generation or the next generation, the next generation, the stories of all the ways he worked salvation out in the life of one generation's children and the next generation's children. And you have the story of how your family and your lineage is woven into the larger story of God's people that he's been working out from the beginning. And you can see his faithfulness played out over and over and over again. Because if you don't do it, you're prone to forget. And no one else is going to remember for you. And I say it as one who hasn't done it. Haven't done it in my own life, haven't done it in the life of our family, haven't done it in the life of this church. And it's one of the things I lament the most when I look back over 11 years. It fell out of fashion about three generations of pastors ago to actually keep a record of the evidences of God's grace in the life of a church. Those of you that are a little bit older might remember that when you bought a Bible, the majority of Bibles had pages in the front of them to record these kinds of things for generations. Pastors used to keep track of all the weddings they did, the funerals they did, the births they did, the stories of God's deliverance in people's lives out of great sickness, out of difficulty, the things that God was doing in their life. So there was this record of God's faithfulness throughout his people's lives in that church. But about two generations of pastors ago, that fell out of fashion. And we don't do it anymore. And so here we are 11 years into this journey and I don't remember. 
On occasion, someone will remind me of something that God had done in their life and the way it worked itself out and how this moment in the life of the church intersected with their life at that moment and how God did something through it. And I don't, I don't remember. I knew at the time, but I, I don't remember. Friends, there are some things of so great a value. It, it's worth making sure you don't forget. This is what Mordecai was after in that moment. And, and if you look down in verse 23 to pick up the story, they agreed with him. Verse 23 says the Jews accepted what they had started to do. Remember, they celebrated spontaneously. Like in relief, they began to worship and celebrate and feast. So they accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written them to do. You're right, Mordecai. I'm going to forget. I don't want to forget. And then in the next few verses, the author of Esther records the big why behind the whole celebration. You might remember for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against them to destroy them. He had cast the poor, that is, lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. They're remembering. We were as good as dead. But God... Therefore, the author says in verse 26, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Poor is the term for lots. It's the term for the device, kind of like dice that were rolled by Haman and his men to determine the day on the calendar that they were going to issue this edict for the annihilation of God's people. And by naming this celebration Purim, constantly remembering the device that was used by Haman to determine when they were going to be annihilated, God's people set in kind of a double entendre here. They're reminding themselves every single year that their lot, that their destiny, the destiny of God's people, it's not going to be determined by something as simple as Haman casting lots before his gods. That it's only their God who determines the role of the lot. It's only our God who determines the lot of his people. They're reminding themselves every single year that it's God alone who determines how things turn out in our world. Our lives are not the product of random chance or chaotic forces or competing powers. As one writer has written about Purim, he said it's God and God alone who determined the lot of his people in Persia back then. And it's God and God alone who determines and continues to determine the lot of his people now and in every generation. This is part of what they were remembering. And so listen to their response to this. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of all that they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated, there's that word again, themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the appointed time every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, in every province, and in every city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease amongst their descendants. And before we get too much further into the actual remembering and celebrating, there's a couple of things that the writer says here in these verses that I think are particularly helpful for us who are somewhat deficient in celebrating, somewhat deficient in joy, in particular when it comes to celebrating the gospel. 
One thing that he says in verse 27, and it struck me this week, and I, and I haven't read Esther a ton of times in my life, but I've read it before, and I've never been struck this way by this before, but in verse 27, the writer makes note that the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them. And it hit me this week because the reality of it is that word obligation, at least in my mind and in my heart, and I think for the majority of us, at least in this culture, that word obligation is a dirty word. I don't want anyone to tell me what they think I'm obligated to do. I determine what I feel like I'm obligated to do. And when it comes to relationships, I like obligation that serves me well. My sinful heart likes to be reminded of the obligation my wife has to me as my spouse. My sinful heart likes my children to be reminded of the obligation they have to me as their parent. But when it comes to my obligations anywhere else, they're for me to determine. I don't like that word. But here in verse 27, the writer says that God's people firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them. Why? Because they didn't see celebrating God's gracious activity as something that was optional in their life. That's what hit me this week. And firmly obligating themselves to this, they were saying that they didn't see remembering and celebrating this great reversal of God's deliverance in their life as something that was optional. Eh, I'll do it, maybe I won't. It was something of so great a value, they felt a holy obligation to God and to one another to remember and celebrate it. I mean, I can just imagine at some point along the way in, the, in a household of an Israelite that Purim comes around and they're going to go to the synagogue to hear Esther read because that was part of the celebration and all the kids are like, I don't want to go to church again. I don't want to hear him read it again. Mom and dad say, no, we're going to go. You're going to go. Because they understood that there was a holy obligation that they have as God's people to him and to one another to remember and to celebrate. I was telling the earlier services, I tried to imagine what it was like in the household of an Israelite back in Isaiah the prophet's day when they rediscovered the feast that God had set in place for his people and they rediscovered the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a feast that remembered their wanderings in the wilderness. And they would build these little stick huts and they would sleep overnight in these stick huts up on the roof of their house. And I'm just trying to imagine how many kids are like, I don't want to go on the roof again. It's not comfortable. We have space here. Mom and dad are like, no, you're going on the roof because we're going to remember and there's a holy obligation we have to God and to one another to remember the things that he has done. Friends, Judaism understands holy obligation. Most of us, if we've grown up in the church at all, we're somewhat familiar with the famous passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where the Lord tells people, tells moms, tells dads that we have this holy obligation to teach his words to our children diligently to talk of them when we sit in the house and when we walk by the way, when we lie down and, and when we rise. The Lord said to the moms and the dads of his people in that day, all these things that I'm telling you in verse six of chapter six of Deuteronomy shall be on your heart. The reality that you're to love me with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, it's supposed to be on your heart. 
And there's this holy obligation that you have to me and to your family to teach these things to your children. But if it's not on your heart, you're never going to understand this obligation that you have. Friends, this is why we focus so much on being gospel-centered. It's why we talk so much about seeing and enjoying Jesus. See, if our hearts are not captured by the great reversal that God has won on our behalf through his son, if our hearts are not growing in deeper delight in who he is for us in Jesus, if we're not seeing him more clearly and our hearts delighting in him more deeply on a day in and day out basis, if our hearts aren't growing, if our minds, our souls, our strength aren't growing in joy and delight in who God is for us in Jesus, we're never going to understand, feel, or even sense the holy obligation we have to him and to others to remember and to celebrate such a great deliverance. They understood that remembering and celebrating God's kindness to them, it wasn't optional. And some of you might remember, you might know a, a pastor by the name of Alastair Begg. He's got one of the most brilliant Scottish accents. And in all irony of ironies, he pastors in Cleveland, Ohio. I heard Begg preach a sermon. I don't even remember what the topic was or the passage was, but I wrote it down in a file where I keep things that I, I hear and that I try to think about at some point. And he had talked about this sense of holy obligation that we have before the Lord and before others. And, and he said this, he, he said, our unwillingness, he's speaking to us, he's speaking to the church. He, he says, our unwillingness to obligate those who are in the framework of our influence speaks volumes to them about the things that are important and vital to us. That's why I asked you earlier, what is it that you celebrate? What is it that you don't celebrate? It speaks volumes to those who get to know you. So if you go back and read this, it wasn't just a firm obligation that God's people felt then for themselves and for their kids. It was for those that even joined themselves to them. Back in chapter 8, when the Persian Empire could see this reversal beginning to occur, see Mordecai rising, see Haman falling, seeing the fortunes of these Israelites beginning to change right in front of them, it said the fear had fallen on them, and many of them began to identify with God's people. And so here they say that this remembrance and this celebration is a firm obligation, not just for them and their kids, but even for those that had joined them. And I begin to think... In my life and in our life, how easy it is for us, for family, for friends to show up on a Friday night and stay through the weekend. Family and friends who may not be followers of Jesus and for us to go, yeah, you know what, our normal rhythm of gathering with God's people, to be reminded of God's grace to us through his word, to celebrate his kindness to us in our worship, to remember that together and encourage one another in that together. We can put that off for this week. You're here. That's not going to be the same for us. And I began to think of how easy it is when something as simple as a visit can overturn the regular rhythm of our life that we're saying something to them about what matters most to us. Friends, they understood a holy sense of obligation for their good and God's glory. But not just that, verse 28 says that they understood that these days should be remembered and kept 
throughout every generation, in every clan, in every province, and in every city. So it wasn't just about their life, and it wasn't just about their children's life, and it wasn't just about those who had immediately attached themselves to them. It wasn't about their life. It was about their descendants and their descendants and their descendants, their grandkids and their great-grandkids. It was in perpetuity. It was an all-encompassing sense of obligation to remember and to celebrate. They did not want anyone to ever forget that they were as good as dead at the hands of Haman and the Persian Empire, but God. God brought the great deliverance that they could not give themselves. And here's the thing, friends. This remembrance and this celebration of Purim, 2,500 years later, it still hasn't stopped. On March 20th and March 21st of this year, Jewish people from around the world and every place and culture they find themselves in gathered to celebrate Purim. And I think it's fascinating when you begin to learn and understand a bit about the Jewish calendar, the way they order their year, that their calendar year begins to end with the feast and the celebration of Purim where they remember God's gracious deliverance of them from this edict of death that Haman had put against them, even when they couldn't see him, even when there were no great miracles, even when there were no plagues and no seas parting, God was there delivering them. And then in April, April 19th through I think the 26th, I can't remember exactly, their calendar year begins anew. And do you know how it begins? Passover remembering and celebrating God's miraculous deliverance of them from slavery in Egypt. They understand their life, their year together, their calendar to be one long story of deliverance. God's work on their behalf from start to finish. So just a couple of weeks ago, their calendar began to wind down with Purim. Now as everybody, every Jewish person celebrates Purim, where they are kind of dictates the ways they go about celebrating. Some of the different customs have changed through the years depending upon where you are. But one thing that remains the same, the essential part that it starts is that everyone gathers together in the synagogue to hear the scroll of Esther, the story of Esther read. And when they will do that, depending upon where they are, different things will happen. I don't, I, I mean, there's a bad, it's a bad analogy, but it's the closest I can get to it. It's kind of like the Rocky Horror Picture Show for any of you that ever went to that. You know, there's, there's whole costumes and actions dictated by the story. Same thing happens with Purim. People dress up like Haman, like Xerxes, like Mordecai, like Esther. Nowadays, it's usually kids, but in different parts of the world, depending on how they celebrate, the adults do it too. And they come together and they hear the story of Esther read. And whenever the name of Haman is read out loud by whoever's reading the scroll, Back in about the second century, what they started doing was taking two rocks and writing Haman's name on each rock and they smash him together whenever his name is read and they try to do it so loud that you can't hear his name. About a century or two later, some historians record that people began to write his name, Haman's name on their shoes. And whenever Haman's name is read in the story, people start stomping their feet on the ground, drowning out his name. But guess what happens to his name on their shoes by the end of the story? It's gone. It's wiped off the face of the earth. In the 13th century, though, parents, you can thank Purim for this. This beautiful wonder was created. So imagine yourself sitting in the synagogue. Every time the name of Haman was read, everybody had one. Drowning out his name every time it would come. You can thank Purim for that wonderful little toy. Wherever they were, different things would happen, but it would all kind of remain the same. They would celebrate, they would remember and celebrate God's great deliverance. They would gather together afterwards, they would feast. 
They even have these cookies called Haman's ears. Everybody eats Haman's ears. The whole part of the tradition. They feast together. They celebrate together. They give gifts to the poor. They feast with those who have been neglected in their community. This is a day of particular generosity amongst the Israelites anywhere in the world. Friends, we have so much that we can learn from this. If our hearts are captured by the grace of God towards us, how much more do we have every reason to celebrate? I love one writer who was writing about Purim. He said, Purim shows us how to redeem feasting. It shows us how to redeem food so that we're not gluttons, but worshipers. Drink so that we're not drunkards, but worshipers. He says that because in the third century, there was a rabbinic writing and tradition that started. So it's been going on since the third century. That it says everyone is to drink enough wine before the celebration of Purim that you can't distinguish between Haman's name being read and Mordecai's name being read. So you can imagine now in some parts of the world where there isn't as much strict adherence to why things are being done, Purim becomes a little more Halloween Mardi Gras-like. Lots of drinking, lots of costumes, not so much remembering why things are being done. But this writer says it helps us, though, to remember we can redeem feasting to the glory of God because we're not gluttons, but worshipers. Drink because we're not drunkards, but worshipers. To celebrate, not in defiance of God, but in the presence of God. To live before his face and invite God and his people to meet together and to celebrate his salvation. You see, friends, because God became a man, he lived without sin. He died in your place for your sin. He rose from the grave by the Spirit of God as your Savior. He gives us his very Spirit, and he gives us a new nature. Because of the grace of God to us in Jesus, because of the glories of the Gospels, if you don't get anything, get this if you want to celebrate. Because of him, this life on this earth is as close to hell as you are ever going to get. Because of Jesus, everything gets better towards eternity. This broken life is as close to hell as you will ever experience if by the grace of God you have believed upon Jesus as your king and savior. And the Bible tells us that Jesus has gone on ahead before us. He is preparing a place for us. He is setting a table for us and he is going to rejoice over us, feasting for all of eternity with singing. That is worth celebrating. That is worth remembering. I love, in fact, I love as we think about the gospel, we think about the resurrection, we think this holy week going into Good Friday, and I'll just give you my Good Friday public service announcement. Did, did you guys already do it earlier? Maybe not. If you've never done Good Friday with us, let me just let you in on something about Good Friday. It's part one of a two-part story, all right? You've got to come back on Easter Sunday for part two, because part one on Good Friday, there is no resurrection. I'm just going to tell you. It's dark. It's about the cross, it's about the death of Jesus, it's a whole lot of music with a whole lot of minor chords, all right? So I'm telling you now so you don't send me emails later on Friday night. It's purposeful because for three days it was dark. 
So you've got to come back on Easter Sunday to get the rest of the story. But it's worth celebrating. You know, as he was preparing to go to the cross, this great holy week, that Jesus eats that last Passover meal with his disciples. And when he eats with them, he tells them, as often as you do this, as often as you come together and you take this bread and you drink this cup, do it what? In remembrance of me. This is the feast, Jesus is saying, of the new covenant that I'm making. This is what we do when we receive communion together every week when we gather. We remember what he did. We remember that he bore in his body the punishment we deserve. We remember that he, by the grace of God, made a way for us. We remember it. We celebrate it. And we remember that there is a day to come when he is coming back for us. Friends, I don't know if you you know much about the history of the church in America. You're probably familiar with the Puritans. You probably have all kinds of ideas of what you think the Puritans were like. But one of the things people always tag on the Puritans is that they hated Easter and Christmas. People always, the Puritans did not celebrate Easter and Christmas. But do you know why they didn't celebrate Easter? They didn't want to set any particular Sunday over and against any other Sunday because that they understood on this side of the cross, every Sunday in essence is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday, God's people gather together that they might remember, be reminded in the midst of a chaotic and stressful and dark and broken fallen world, but for God. They know that every time God's people gather together, they remember the great reversal and the deliverance that God has worked out on behalf of his people through his son. And it's worth remembering and it's worth celebrating every single time we gather. Thank you. One person gets it. We need to be reminded. We need to remember again together. God's continued mercy to us in Jesus because we're prone to forget. Because life in a fallen world drains so much hope out of us. Which is why I love, at the end of chapter 9, Esther kind of brings the full context of the feast and the celebration of Purim into focus. Look down at verse 29. Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jews, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. So she's going to write her own letter now about this. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. Friends, one of the things about Purim that has made it so unique, so special in the life of the Jewish people all of these centuries is that this is one of the ways God's people remember his faithfulness in a time of exile. It's a way that God's people have faced exile together. You see, Esther made sure the context of Purim was rounded out with their lamenting and their mourning, not just their feasting and their celebrating. It's one of the reasons why in the calendar of the church you find Lent 40 days leading up to Easter. Because the celebration of Easter joy and the resurrection of Jesus is best seen in its stark contrast to the reality of sin and life in a broken world. Esther rounds out the full context of this celebration by making sure you don't forget 
We were dead. We were all but gone at the hands of Haman. And there was great lamenting. There was great mourning. There was great distress. But God, in a time of exile, when nothing seems to make sense, when home seems far away, when the world, you look around and it's not as it should be, they would remind themselves together that God is still in control. Friends, that's the bigger message of the whole story. As one writer said, Purim reminds us, as it's reminded the Jewish people for centuries, that we can celebrate even in the darkness, for there is the promise that God is bringing the light. Even when the world is chaotic and seems to be falling apart, there is the assurance that God is holding it together and bringing it to its rightful conclusion. In short, Purim is about meeting the pain of our exile with the celebration of God's providence. And friends, as significant as Purim has been for the Jewish people for centuries now, some 2,000 years plus, God's word reminds us on this side of the cross, we as his people continue to live as exiles in this world. This world is not our home. We are sojourners, Peter says, aliens, strangers in this world. And the days of our life can be chaotic. We can feel far from home. As the longing in our heart grows and the delight in God's promises grows and our desire to be with him forever grows, we can feel far from home as things around us seem to fall apart, seem to be out of control, seem to be messy, seem to be dark, things not as they should be. Exile is a defining essence of our life, this side of the cross before the return of Jesus. Yet, yet, even in it, we have something to celebrate. Friends, in Esther, God's people got rest from their enemies. But don't miss this. You can keep reading in Esther chapter 10, just three verses. Even as the story comes to an end, Xerxes is still on the throne. As unpredictable and unruly and unstable as he was in the beginning, he still is. And to bring it full circle from the start, just as he remitted taxes in the beginning, he puts them back in now. Things are not as they should be. God's people achieved and they celebrate and remember a particular rest for their enemies, but that rest wasn't complete. There was a rest that God has promised his people that they were still longing for. There was a rest that was yet to come. And that particular rest is not going to come until the one who seeks their good and speaks their peace. These words from Esther, they came in peace and in truth. Chapter 10 says Mordecai led with an authority and brought peace to his people in that land, but the peace their hearts need, it's not going to come until the one who brings it is second in rank to no one. Mordecai, second in rank to Xerxes, sought for the peace of his people in the land. Praise God. But the peace that God promised and the peace their hearts want, it's not going to come until someone greater comes. It's not going to come until the true king comes, the one who is the prince of peace, whose reign never ends. I love how Ian Dugan, a pastor in St. Louis, says it. He says, Jesus came not as a mighty warrior. This is what we talked about last week, but as the prince of peace in Christ, in Jesus Former Amalekites and Jews are now brought together in the glorious peace that flows to the one new people of God. 
Yet this peace we have came at a great cost. This peace was established for us by God declaring holy war on his son. That's what was happening on the cross. You might remember from last week. God the Father laid upon his son Jesus the guilt of all the sins of those who would become his people. Having laid our sin on his shoulders, God the Father then poured out the full measure of his wrath against sin upon his son. His body was not merely tortured and brutalized by the Romans to the point of death, but it was exposed to the cosmic shame by being hung on the cross. Like Haman and his sons, Jesus' body was hung on a tree, the ultimate sign of God's judgment. On the cross, Jesus fully bore God's curse upon our sin. Why? He said, so that we might receive the peace, the peace that all of our hearts have longed for. We might receive peace through his righteousness and have rest. Not just rest from the enemies around, but rest from all of our guilt and sin and access into the life-giving presence of God for all of eternity. Friends, if, if the reversal God won for his people that they celebrate at Purim is worth celebrating annually, how much more so should we who are the beneficiaries, the recipients of a much greater reversal, the grace of the greatest reversal ever ever delivered in human history, how much more so should we be a people of celebration? How much more so should we be a people known for a legacy of gratitude, of thanksgiving, of deep and abiding gospel joy? How much more so should the story be told of us on this side of the cross that they were a people of great gladness, of light and joy? Friends, through Jesus, a peace has come to us that no circumstance can take away. Through Jesus, a rest has come to us that frees us from any sense of striving ever to earn God's favor or love. Next week is Easter Sunday. Praise God, yes and amen. It's worth a particular point of celebration for those that we would call together to worship and to celebrate God, those to hear the gospel maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time. It's worth celebrating. It's worth the joy that it brings. But friends, every Sunday is Easter Sunday for us. The Puritans were right. Because of the gospel, this morning, God calls you as he calls me to remember. As we come in here, even in the darkness and the chaos of exile, aspects of life falling apart, things not seeming to make sense, things not feeling like they're the way they're supposed to be, feeling very far from a home. He calls us to remember. He obligates us for his glory and our joy, to remember, to remember the sinless son of God being made sin on our behalf, so that by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God in him. He calls us, even in exile, to remember, in particular, that he's still in control, that he's the one that determines the lot. He's the one that determines the days and the purposes of his people. And so this morning, 
as we respond to God's word, as we do every week when we gather, we're doing it in remembrance of him. You're going to have a couple of minutes in silence to reflect and to pray, to think on God's word, to respond to him. And then for those who by the grace of God have repented of their sins and believed upon Jesus as King and Savior, you're going to be called to come forward to receive communion just as Jesus had instructed. And remember, to take the bread and remember his body broken in your place for your sins, to dip it in the cup, remembering his blood spilled for your justification, for your salvation, for your deliverance, to remember the greatest reversal in all of human history worked out by the grace of God for you. And as you do it, just as Jesus said, you are proclaiming something. You are speaking volumes to everyone around you about what matters most to you and what is worth your celebration because in receiving this communion, we are indeed celebrating the promises of God. We are declaring our confidence and proclaiming together that he is who he says he is and he is faithful and he is ours and we are his. So I'm going to pray. This is what we're going to do. We're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on your own and then we're going to call you forward to receive, to remember, to celebrate as we're sent out from here as his people. So let me pray and then we'll continue. Father, we thank you this morning for the reminders again of your continued faithfulness, of your continued mercy to us, reminders again of just how great a salvation it is you have worked for us through your son. It is so easy for my heart, Lord, to make light of my sin that cost your son his life. Lord, we don't want to be a people that take sin lightly, but we want to be a people who rejoice in salvation deeply. So God, help us by your spirit Delight in your grace towards us in Christ more deeply today than we did when we came in and more deeply tomorrow than we did today. We want to be a people who are known for seeing you and enjoying you, delighting in you and your salvation, delighting in you and your grace and displaying that delight to a watching world. That's who we want you to make us to be. And so we ask this morning that you would do that very thing by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.